This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about coming together in a world that pulls us apart. From Oakland, California to Hamilton, Massachusetts, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Last May, as the severity of the pandemic set in and it became clear that our cloistered way of life wasn't going anywhere, I went on a bike ride in the Oakland Hills. It was a beautiful summer day with flowers blooming on every tree and bush, but I was tense and jumpy after a day of trying to work while negotiating screen time with the kids who'd spent most of their day whining and complaining about school and each other. Even though we were far enough into the pandemic for me to understand that the old life was gone, maybe forever, I couldn't stop myself from wishing for it. In the old life, we had a stable income. In the old life, I had full days of quiet while my husband Nate was at work and the kids were at school. In the old life, my afternoon ride would have left me feeling grateful instead of grumpy. As I climbed up neighborhood roads and past mossy streams, I pedaled harder and faster, hoping to burn off my agitation. Sweat dripped down my back as I wound around a neighborhood street where the road curved sharply downhill and then just as sharply uphill at my next left turn. It was a windy street that didn't see much traffic, even in pre-pandemic times. And so as I cruised downhill, I coasted to the left so I could cut the corner and keep my momentum going up the next hill. I took my hands off the brakes, came around the final blind corner, and let myself fly right into the path of an oncoming car. I swerved so hard to the right that my wheels spun out from under me and my arms skidded on the pavement. We'd avoided a collision, but I was on the ground and my bike was on top of me. My handlebars were twisted like a broken limb. I'm so sorry, are you okay? The driver said from his rolled down window. I'm so sorry, I said. I shouldn't have been in your lane. I stood to my feet and checked to make sure that I could still move everything. You're sure you're okay, he said, looking at my arm where my road rash was bleeding. Is there anything I can do? I did my best to straighten my handlebars and fake confidence I didn't feel. I don't think so. Thanks for stopping to make sure I'm okay. As I rode away, tears streaked from my eyes and my whole body shook. My arms stung and my pride was scraped raw. But then I saw something that changed everything, that made me forget for a moment about pandemic life and even about my accident. Nate and the kids were biking down our street, slowly riding up each driveway onto the sidewalk and then down the next driveway back onto the street. Our three-year-old Matea was strapped to Nate's back in a hiking backpack, and our other two kids were following behind on their bikes. The scene I witnessed was one that would become a daily ritual, what the kids would call the bike train, a pandemic hallmark to get us through the long weeks of summer. At first, it was just Nate and the kids, but after a few days, the kids from a few houses over joined in. Then the little girl who lived a few blocks away started coming by in the mornings to ask us when the bike train was starting. That daily bike train became a simple but powerful act of community, a small way to experience a bit of levity in a life that felt painfully serious. Each day, the kids would take turns playing follow the leader on their bikes, weaving in and out of driveways, laughing and talking loudly as they rode. Parents would take turns standing in the street to keep an eye out for cars, but cars didn't come by very often. 
All across Oakland, streets had been barricaded in an effort to encourage people to get outside and stay socially distanced. We were just a few blocks away from one of those open streets. And even though our street wasn't blocked off, we still experienced the ripple effect of fewer cars in the neighborhood. Often, as we stood out on the sidewalk chatting with our neighbors across the street while the kids biked, I had the thought that maybe in some ways this new life was better. Maybe the old way of doing things hadn't actually been working. In today's episode, we're holding the old way and the new way up side by side, parsing out the parts of pandemic life that we want to hold on to. Clara Smith, one of our shelter-in-place apprentices, is going to kick us off with a story that begins a lot like mine. Last week, on a beautiful spring day, I grabbed my helmet, hopped on my bike, and began my trek to work. All around me, I could hear the sounds of kids laughing, neighbors chatting, cars honking, parents calling their kids to come inside. It was a very Brooklyn scene. And then, just as quickly, I was faced with another very Brooklyn scene. A car swerved into the bike lane and came so close to me that I had to jerk sharply to the left, almost wiping out and narrowly missing another car that was stopped in the intersection. Watch where the f you're going. You almost hit me, I yelled at the driver who had his window down. The light turned green and I started riding again, but not before I saw him roll his eyes at me. A second later, I felt the hot metal rush of a car approaching me. And then that same driver swerved into the bike lane once again, this time on purpose. I banged on the side of his car as he drove past me and then sped off ahead. I took a breath and knew what I had to do. I secured my phone in its holder on my handlebars, pressed record and sped down Williamsburg streets chasing this driver who thought he stood a chance at getting away from me by car. In any other place, he would win, but not in New York. I had bike lanes. He had traffic. He was careless and uncertain in his lane changes and turns. I knew these streets with my eyes closed. There was no way I wasn't catching up to him. I saw his face in the side mirror and he craned his head at the window to look back at me. When he saw me racing towards him, his eyes widened and his mouth dropped. I could hear the growl of his foot on the gas as he made erratic turns to get away from me. Each time the light went green, he'd get further away from me, and then the next light would turn red and I'd close the distance. At last, I chased him to a street where he couldn't escape. An enormous truck was unloading cargo, backing up traffic for the entire block. Seeing that he was caught, the driver leaned out his window and started yelling as I pulled up beside him. It was a mistake, he yelled. You could have killed me, I yelled back. I didn't see you. But then you swerved into me again, I said. You swerved into me twice. You have any idea how dangerous you are? How many cyclists are killed every year because of people like you? What are you going to do? Call the cops, he said. I'm a member of the PBA. No one's going to arrest me. This, for me, was the most angering part. He just made it explicit that he felt comfortable endangering my life because he knew there wouldn't be consequences. The Police Benevolent Association is basically a union for police officers. Its stated purpose is to protect their rights and apparently also protect them from angry cyclists like me. In function, it gives them impunity from the law. I can't really repeat what he said to me next. It was something along the lines of, Who the <coughs> do you think you are anyway? I stepped off my bike and planted my feet directly in front of his car so he couldn't go anywhere. Behind him, cars were honking and people were yelling at their windows to get out of the road, but I couldn't move. I was trembling in rage, stuck in my anger, right there in the middle of that New York street, 
We were in a stalemate of him cursing at me and me saying over and over again, but you swerved into me until he finally yelled back. And what do you want me to do about it now? The question pulled me out of my cycle of fury. I don't know, I sputtered. Maybe pull over and see if I'm okay? Maybe just apologize for almost killing me? Even though the truck was still blocking the end of the street and there was nowhere for him to go, the driver jolted his car forward and drove right over my foot. And still, no apology. I lost it. I might have kept chasing him down all day if I hadn't been stopped by a gentle voice on the sidewalk behind me. I turned to see a woman with a loose gray bun at the nape of her neck and a summery dress with sunflowers printed on it. I have this all in video, she said, and then quickly added, are you okay? This was my way out, the only way I could leave the situation without completely losing my dignity. I hesitated, nodded, and then winced when I took a step with the foot that had just been run over. Come inside and get some water, she said, walking towards me and placing a gentle hand on my elbow. My shop is just right here. Do you need ice for your foot? No, no, I said. I'm on my way to work. I just would love that video you have. She gave me a look that was both stern and kind. No, text work. Tell them you're going to be late. Come inside and sit down. So I did as she said. She brought me a glass of water and even some arnica. She did Reiki on my tense shoulders. This happens all the time, she says softly. People get hurt. Sometimes they die. And each time, nothing changes. At last, she was satisfied that my foot wasn't broken and that I'd calmed enough to go to work. Thank you, I said. Of course, she smiled and touched my hand. We have to do what we can to keep each other safe in this city. One of the scariest moments in parenting for me was a few years ago when I was helping my older two kids in the bath while my daughter Matea, who was a toddler at the time, was playing on a blanket in the living room. She'd only been walking for a few months, and so even though I couldn't see her from the bathroom, I figured she'd be okay for a few minutes while I got my two older kids out of the tub. It took me a minute to realize that the living room had gone quiet. I heard a car honking from the street outside our house. The front door was wide open. I ran outside in my bare feet, expecting the worst, and saw my neighbor Giselle walking up the sidewalk with Matea in her arms. And she was smiling, completely unaware of the panic she'd just induced. I was just driving by when she stepped out into the street, Giselle said. I'm so glad I saw her before another car could come by. Giselle is a parent too, so she wasn't scolding me. She'd had situations like that with her own kids, those sobering moments when you realize that in a split second, you could lose your child. Our neighborhood is quiet and the traffic isn't steady, but every once in a while, a car would speed down our street, realizing too late that there were two speed bumps on our block. We once witnessed a high-speed car chase as a car fled past our house and away from the police. We've been calling this season of shelter-in-place pandemic odyssey, because as we've traveled from one coast to the other, from the old life to the new one, we've often felt like Odysseus lost at sea, wondering if we'll ever get home. Sometimes navigating that life can feel a bit dangerous. There's a scene in the Odyssey where Odysseus has to sail his ship through a narrow passage where there are monsters on either side. On one side is Scylla, a six-headed monster. On the other is Charybdis, a violent whirlpool ready to suck down ships like a toilet flushing. Like Clara, Nate has been biking to work for years, and I've often cautioned him to be careful. 
On one occasion, he was knocked off his bike when the door of a parked car suddenly swung open and hit him as he was passing. Being a cyclist in a city can feel a lot like traveling between Scylla and Charybdis. You're not supposed to bike on the sidewalk. That space is for walkers, people who might bite your head off, or at least be irritated, if you get too close. But on the other side is an even more dangerous option, a street with moving and parked cars, potholes that will pop your tires, and maybe even the occasional angry driver who will swerve into you if you're lucky enough to have a bike lane. When the odds are stacked against you, when it's so clear that the landscape was built not for people but for cars, sometimes all you can do is choose the least bad option. For Odysseus, that meant losing six of his best men to the six-headed monster. For Clara, it meant narrowly avoiding being hit. The moral of this story is not that biking is dangerous. It's that our cities could be different if we prioritized people over machines. During the pandemic, there was almost no traffic on our street. But until our streets went quiet, I would have found this line of thinking a little hard to grasp. Sure, I would have said, cars outnumber bikers, but isn't that just the way it has to be? But that bike train gave me vision for a different way to move through my city. In pre-pandemic times, the bike train probably wouldn't have happened. Kids biked around, but never without the worry of approaching cars. In a time when people felt isolated inside their homes, that bike train reminded us that we were still a community. Clara experienced something similar in her own neighborhood. This is Berry Street. It's about as different as you could imagine from that street where the angry driver ran over my foot. It's a mile-long stretch where no through traffic is allowed. Metal barricades block off the ends of the street, and the open street is bustling with the sounds of summer. A street musician playing sax, friends walking and talking, neighbors chatting over coffee, and even a group of kids doing their own version of a bike train. Berry Street is a few blocks away from where I live in Brooklyn. But I didn't find out about it until about a year ago, right around the time that Laura's family started their daily bike train. Last May, New York was the epicenter of the pandemic with thousands of new cases and hundreds of deaths each day. And I was feeling more closed in than ever. At a time when it felt like the world was unraveling, I wanted to do something to stop it. I was raised on the belief that being a good person meant doing your part to make a difference. My parents were always very involved in local politics. And when I was younger, I joined my mom going door to door, handing out flyers on election years and helping make protest signs at our kitchen table. I joined her phone banking and spread out plastic tablecloths when we hosted fundraisers for local candidates. In my New Jersey suburban town of 40,000 people, community engagement felt manageable. The link between our actions and the results they produced was obvious. But a few years ago, I moved to New York for my job. I loved New York, and I had a group of friends that made it feel like home. But at the same time, in a city of 8.4 million, I felt like one small person in a giant city, like nothing I could do would ever make a difference. That feeling was amplified when the pandemic hit. Over the summer, one of my closest friends moved several time zones away. After months of spending almost every day of lockdown in the company of someone I loved, I was alone. My Brooklyn apartment, which I shared with two other roommates, suddenly felt too small. Every day felt the same. My routine of waking up, walking two feet to the desk for work, 
eating breakfast, lunch, dinner, spending the evening with my roommate, watching Survivor, and then heading to bed became a monotonous pattern I couldn't seem to break out of. Summer came with its sunshine and heat, but I felt disconnected, unable to fully enjoy it in the way I had in summers past. I had reconnected with friends around the city over Zoom or social distance park dates, but I didn't just want socialization. I wanted to be useful. I wasn't satisfied passively waiting for the pandemic to be over while so many people in my city needed help and support. But all I could do was stay home. I wasn't a nurse. I wasn't an epidemiologist. I couldn't go out there and save people's lives beyond giving money and sharing information. But I felt like I had to do something. The turning point came when I learned about a mutual aid organization that had formed at the beginning of the pandemic to meet the needs of the neighborhood. The North Brooklyn Mutual Aid is made up of local volunteers who, at the peak of the pandemic, coordinated daily delivery of masks to hospitals, hot meals to senior centers, and did grocery runs for neighbors in need. Over time, they expanded to include vaccine sign-up programs, a compost project, and a housing defense group, among many other things. I began delivering meals to senior centers, helping to stock community fridges, collect compost, which is how I learned about open streets. In New York City, there's a fundamental inequality between people and cars. For every car here, there are 1.5 parking spots. Street parking takes up what is equivalent to 12 central parks. But the majority of people who live in New York don't have cars, and only 25% of New Yorkers even drive to work. On the flip side, for every bike spot in New York City, there are 116 bikers vying for a spot to lock up. Over half of a typical New York City street is dedicated to moving cars, a quarter to parked cars, and less than 1% to bike lanes. That disproportion between people and machines doesn't just affect those who commute. Last year was the deadliest year on New York City streets since the mayor took office and started the Vision Zero program with its ambitious aim to end traffic deaths by 2024. In 2020, nearly 100 pedestrians died and well over 200 people died overall in crashes. North Brooklyn is a neighborhood ringed by highways, truck routes, heavy industry. For years, its residents have suffered from high rates of asthma, as well as pedestrian fatalities from trucks and cars. In North Brooklyn, which has some of the least green space per resident in the borough, there's about 29 square feet per person. That's about the size of a queen-size mattress. The typical car takes up more than twice that amount of space. More cars means more streets and less green space, which means less outdoor space for people to exercise and eat and play and live. The Open Streets program started in the spring of 2020 when New York City decided to open up 100 of its 6,000 miles of streets for pedestrians. That meant closing it off to through traffic and slowing down any cars and local traffic that might be driving down that block. Initially, it was a way to create space for people to walk around while maintaining social distancing, which was hard to do on a sidewalk. It's what Oakland was doing in Laura's neighborhood. But what began as a measure to address pandemic needs ended up showing us a better way to live. New Yorkers realized that its city was better with fewer cars, that redesigning the city for its people might be an effective path forward in making our neighborhoods safer and more enjoyable to live in. Originally, the mayor's office designated the New York City Police Department to run the program, but the NYPD never took a personal interest in the project. They didn't set up the barricades to block off the street, which meant there were no open streets. 
On a few streets, the NYPD did put up the barricades and police the area, but it didn't take off since people didn't want to hang out on a street where police officers were standing guard. So the program was quickly revamped and took applications from community partners to maintain open streets, which is how the North Brooklyn Open Streets Community Coalition was formed. I found open streets right around the time that that coalition had taken over the project in our neighborhood. When I learned about the work that Open Streets was doing just a few blocks from my house, I immediately joined them. Each day, we would set up, take down, and care for the barricades that blocked off two stretches of roadway, including that Barry Street stretch. I started to get to know my neighbors who were volunteering with me. One neighbor told me that before Open Streets, he'd often had to drive out of the neighborhood just to find a safe space for his son to be outside. Now he could just open his front door and bike on the streets with the other kids. Our neighborhood began to change too. People were friendlier to each other. Neighbors grilled out on the sidewalk and shared coffee in the streets. I began to feel like this wasn't just the place I was living, it was home. Those lonely days from the beginning of the pandemic feel far away in the rearview mirror. Some mornings I walk over to the edge of my roof and call out to my friend in the next building over. She climbs through her window to her fire escape and we talk across a space between our buildings. We've rigged a pulley system between our rooftops and sometimes she'll pull lemony flavored leaves from her window box garden and pass them over to me for my tea. We talk about what we're doing that day, about work and relationships and our plans for the future. Those conversations are their own kind of community building, a daily reminder that in any city, we can be isolated or embraced. The difference comes in how we help each other. This week, I found myself telling her about my road rage, about how I felt both justified and humiliated in my anger. I'm working on it, I said. It's just that every time something happens like this, it triggers this complete volcano of anger. But how lovely that woman in the shop came to your aid, my friend pointed out over her steaming cup of tea, that she could offer you a place to rest and recover and remind you that better things are possible. For me, that's what Open Streets is. It's a beginning, a first step to a safer city. From setting up barricades to meeting friends across rooftops over tea, it's a reminder that better things are possible, that safety is less about geography and more about connection. Open Streets has given communities across the city safe spaces to walk, get groceries, talk with neighbors, while staying socially distanced and out of the way of cars. In the span of a year, I went from walking the streets of my neighborhood knowing no one to watching the mayor sign a bill reflecting the work that my own neighbors and friends had pushed forward. The New York City Council recently voted to make the Open Streets program permanent. The bill they introduced would require the Department of Transportation to maintain and fund an Open Streets program in the city going forward. The mayor, Bill de Blasio, just signed it into law. I moved into a city of millions of people and watched as a few neighborhoods made tangible change. I'm still working on managing my anger, even when it's justified, but knowing that I'm surrounded by people who care makes the struggle feel possible. We have to do what we can to keep each other safe in this city. What's so powerful about Open Streets is that it started with a real need in the community for people to be safe, and then someone took the step to organize it. It became a daily thing. Those open streets started to change the way that people felt in their neighborhoods. It made them feel safer in their streets. It allowed them to get to know each other, even in a pandemic. In that city with millions of people, 
a few neighborhoods questioned the way things had always been done and imagined a better way of living. Eventually, city officials saw that, and they signed that change into law. It's a powerful model, an example of how the new life can be better than the old one. And often, that change starts small. We've been ending each episode with an invitation. And so today, I want to invite you to think about the place you live. Maybe you're in a big city like Clara, or in a quiet neighborhood with sporadic traffic like me. Maybe you're out in the country and you see more land than people. Maybe biking to work isn't an option for you. But just for a moment, I want to invite you to close your eyes and put all of that aside. Try to imagine a world built for people instead of for cars. What would that look like in our cities, in our towns, in our suburbs? What if instead of closing ourselves off to the possibility that things could be different, we opened up instead? It might be as simple as a barricade or a bike train or a block party that we host. It might be the thing that helps us finally get to know our neighbors. In a couple of weeks, our family will be leaving Massachusetts and slowly making our way back west. Our first stop is New York City. We're going to meet Clara and the other New York apprentices for the first time. My kids will have their bikes with them, so we might meet up at a park. Maybe they can even do a bike train. Or we might just meet up on one of Clara's open streets. Shelter-in-place episodes are now airing on radio stations across the nation, and station managers have told us that listener requests make a big difference in what they choose to air. If you'd like to hear Shelter-in-Place on your local public radio station, send them an email or give them a call and ask them to air our episodes. As always, if you listen to the end of each episode, you'll hear Shelter-in-Place outtakes. But first, we want to thank one of our regular supporters, Annie Gullick, when I think about open streets, I think about you. Not just the bike trains, but the bike rides, the neighborhood runs, the hours spent on camp chairs in front of our houses. Your friendship, support, and encouragement have been a rock to me in this pandemic year. To you, our listeners, we want to say thank you, because Shelter in Place is listener-supported, and we really couldn't do this without you. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts help more people to find us. You can find information on how to donate to Shelter in Place on our website, shelterinplacepodcast.info. Clara Smith, Samantha Skinner, and Shweta Watway were our associate producers for this episode. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode came from Storyblocks. Alana Herlins is our producer, Nate Davis is our creative director, Sarah Edgel is our design director, and our amazing second cohort of Spring Apprentices are Michelle O'Brien, Samantha Skinner, Clara Smith, Elin Tekle, and Shweta Watwe. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now, if you're still listening, here's a little outtake. And first, I just have to say, Clara Smith is one of the nicest people I have ever met. Here she is now. Why were you following? I'm following you because you almost. Oh my God! Just go. Are you gonna go or not?
Go, what do you mean go? The bike lane's blocked, then you're gonna be a thing, dog. Here's your so get out of the car and talk to me. Well, you got a plate number on my car, thank God. You see, I'm affiliated with the PDA, right? All right. Oh, you're gonna drive over my foot! Oh. You just drove over my foot! But you're blocking me! Don't drive with someone standing in front of your car! God, dragging the situation. He just drove over my foot! She's blocking me. It's a mistake! It's not a mistake when you're in a car! When did you say you were sorry? You never said you were sorry. You drove over my foot! What the is wrong with you? A Huda Media Production.